I want to repeat the text that I read last Sunday, and from that text began a, ser- a sermon, starts a series, <laughs> a sermon on, on revival that I did not get to finish. So I want to finish it today. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. It's the second part of the sermon on why revival tarries. In case you weren't here last Sunday, we went until 12 and quit. So I'll probably do the same today. Praise to the Lord who has given his people Israel rest, just as he promised. For not one word has failed of the good promise he made through his servant Moses. And the psalmist said, O Lord, your love reaches into the heavens and your faithfulness unto the skies. This week I've been trying to memorize some verses on the faithfulness of God. And then we have this great song, which is my favorite among others. Like, um, well, you don't need to. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came about from the day the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim that the time was long For it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals, and the Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah, Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. And the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as Bethkar. 
Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. You remember singing that song, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thine help I'm come. You remember that song? That's where that came from. Some of you shook your head to know. It's uh, come thou fount of every blessing. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come any more within the barn of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the, the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now, my time is short, but I want to review just briefly the fact that in every revival in history or the Bible, there are certain components that are always present without exception. You can put these under the general headings, but there are three, at least three components that are always present in every revival. There are certain conditions that demand it. If revival doesn't come, terrible things may happen. Conditions that demand it are uh, uh, circumstances that demand it. Secondly, there are conditions or circumstances that, that determine revival. If there's ever going to be a revival, there are certain things that must happen within the congregation, within the church. And then there are characteristics that denote it. Always when there is revival, there are certain characteristics that you will find that attend that revival, always without exception. Now there were certain circumstances that demanded revival in this day. It was a time of spiritual confusion. The leadership of the religious establishment had lost their witness and the people were saying, if this is all you think, if this is how you consider the word and the will of God, we want no part of it. And the scripture says that they despise the sacrifice of God because of the witness or the inconsistency of the religious establishment. It was a time of religious destitution they lamented after God, but God had decreed that his judgment was coming. I made special note last Sunday and emphasized it that when a people profane God's will and word and reject him and resist him and there is no revival, God's judgment is inevitable. His grace is not infinite. It has it has a limit to it. And then we came to the conditions that, that determine revival. Those conditions, you remember, are these. A thorough job of repentance. Return to the Lord with your whole heart, he said. Now, it implies two things. It implies that you've left him if he tells you to return to him. 
It may be that you've left your first love. There is no love there. There is no joy there. There is no commitment there. You're here at church every time the doors are open, but your love is not with him or his word. Return to the Lord with your whole heart implies that there, is a, there can be a half-hearted return, a half-hearted repentance, that, that you repent, but not with your whole heart. Return to the Lord with your whole heart. Second, put away the strange gods that are among you. Now, it's not strange that we have a God, for everybody has a God. A God is what he worships, and what he worships is what he puts first in every area of his life. What do you put first in every area of your life? Now, Samuel was saying, it's not strange that you have a God. It's that this God you have is strange. This is not the God that brought you out of bondage. This is not the God that saved you. Is whom you put first in your life the one with whom you have a redemptive relationship, a covenant relationship? If not, it's a strange God. Has no ears, no hands, no eyes, no heart. Then he talks about a thorough job of rededication of one's life, and this is how he illustrated it. They came with a pitcher of water and they poured out that water there at the altar, symbolizing the fact that their commitment to God was all the way when you pour out water, you don't pick it up and use it again. It's not, I, you don't say king's X, you know. I didn't mean that. Um, you, make a, you make a commitment to God, it's for a lifetime. When Cortez landed at Veracruz, he burnt all the, bro, the, the uh, uh, ships that brought him there and burnt the bridges that connected him to the past. If you come to the Lord with your whole heart, it means that you're going to have to stop doing what you were doing in the past. Burn the bridges, break the relationships, give up the habits. Stop what you were doing, break the bonds that connect you to the past. Now to this third one. The third condition that determines revival is the acknowledgement or the recognition and the resolution of sin. Now this is what they said when they came to the altar. They made that statement that's so difficult for us to make. They cried, we have sinned. Fosdick once said, there is now in us and our hopes and all of our efforts at good something that has come against a powerful antagonism something terrible and terrific within the human nature that makes all of our lovely virtues evil and all of our finest efforts to fail. Our forefathers called it sin. If you have a better name for it, use it. But recognize the reality of this realistic fact. We have sinned. Carl Menninger of, of Menninger Clinic has written a best-selling book 
Some of you have read it. I saw it in some libraries in homes I visited. The title of it is Whatever Became of Sin. Carl Menninger, the famous psychologist, said that man in these last decades has done his best to explain away his critical central problem. He has done his best to explain away his real problem, and that is that he is a sinner in rebellion against God. If you have a better name for it, use it. But realize this realistic fact. We have sinned. Now, not only is there the recognition of that sin, there is the resolution of it in Samuel's day. They did something about that sin when they recognized it. Now, I'd like to digress just a little bit and, 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 and move away from an expository treatment of this text. You'll give me that permission, I'm assuming. If not, I'll just do it anyway. But uh, I, wanna, I wanna digress from this text and I want to visit with you kind of as a, in a pastoral visit about some areas that need some attention, about some altars that need to be repaired. Now before the fire felt at Carmel, the altar had to be repaired. I want to just visit a bit with you about some areas of sin that need some, some, some resolving. I think we need to repair the altar with regard to a healthy home life. A healthy home life. Before revival comes, we need to do some things about that. A few years ago, Time Magazine ran an article about a young boy named Walter Vandermeer. He overdosed with, with drugs in New York City and died. They, they, he was dressed in this old T-shirt that said on it, you know, how these words, it said, I wish I could bite somebody to get rid of my frustration. Now to overdose with drugs in New York City was not uncommon. Thousands of people do that every day in the city of New York. The thing that made that boy's death different was that he was the youngest boy, youngest person who ever overdosed with drugs on record. He was 10 years old. Now I know that Walter Vandermeer saw things in New York City, in that terrible city, that our kids will never see in the city of Durant. I'm not so naive to think that it's the same here as it is there. I'm not that naive. But I will say this, that the same forces of evil that brought about that young boy's destruction are rampant in this city. Sin is still sin, and Satan is still Satan, and evil is still evil. And if we think that we have no problem with drug addiction, if we think that we have no problem with alcoholism, if we think we have no problem with illegitimate births, then we're sticking our head in the sand. Stop kidding yourself, my friend. The same forces of evil that brought about that boy's destruction are rampant in this very place. Now, I don't know the answer. I wish I did. 
I wish I had the solution, but I do know where the answer has to begin. It has to begin in the home with the keepers of the gates. A number of years ago, they built the wall around the Great Wall of China and said, this wall is impregnable. Nobody will ever breach it. But within the first year, it had been breached five times. You know how? Because the keepers of the gates accepted bribes. I'm here to tell you, my deepest conviction is that the keepers of the gates, that is the parents and the homes across America and the national problem is just symptomatic of a personal problem. The, the, the keepers of the gates have sold out too cheaply. And we need to repair the altar, the altars that have, we, have, we have neglected where we used to come together as a family but now we use that lame old excuse, we're too busy. We need to repair the altar of a commitment not just to the family, but to the church. God's not going to send revival to a church where the people in that church don't care. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I believe that if you're a parent, your first responsibility is to your home, to your, to your children, don't misunderstand. Your first responsibility as a parent is not to the church, but to your home. A lady came to Dwight L. Moody one time. She's one of these aggressive personalities. She said, Mr. Moody, I feel God calling me to the ministry. He said, oh, really? How many kids do you have? She said, seven. He said, you're right. There's your congregation." Uh, your first responsibility is to your home, but it doesn't seem possible to me that a person could be in love with Jesus Christ and divorced from his church. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. And there are a lot of people watching me this morning on television, and I'm not trying to cut them off at all, but there are a lot of people who are watching me on television who watch on television because they don't like the church. You need to get back in the church. We need a commitment to the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. Mahatma Gandhi gave us a pretty good illustration of it when he said, we have 40 people in the wagon 10 people pushing the wagon up the hill and 50 people on top of the hill shouting encouragement down to the 10. We need to get the 40 people out of the wagon who are complaining about the bumpy ride and we need to get the 50 people off of the hill who are shouting down criticism and direction and get them all behind the wagon, which is the church. And here, a single amen. There you go, that's the one. We need, a, we need not only to repair the altar of the home and the church, we need to repair the altar of our own personal relationship with God. Revival comes when the altar of our own personal relationship with the Redeemer is repaired. I heard this man give his testimony. He was a preacher. He said, I thought the way you preached is that you prepared a little 
civic club message and added a few stained glass window words in there. And that, that was a sermon. He said, so I had me some real civic club speeches and I'd add me some stained glass window words in them and I was just really feeling good. He said, one morning I was getting ready to go in the auditorium and chairman of my deacons came in and said, Pastor, you're spiritually dead. Well, he said, that wasn't really what I wanted to hear. Uh, just before I went in to preach on Sunday morning, he said, I kind of gasped, you know, kind of vapor locked, trying to get my breath. He said, he looked right at me, looked me right in the eye, and he said, I'm saying this with all the love of my heart, Pastor. You're my pastor and I love you, but you're spiritually dead. He said, when we come to church on Sunday morning, we, we have no word from God because you're spiritually dead. And he said, I started at first in anger to lash back and defend myself. But he said, God took those words and pierced my soul with them. And he said, if I'm spiritually dead, sir, then help me. And he said, we got out on our knees. And he said, I got my life right, my heart right with God. And the pastor said, I've never been the same since. Now, I know that happens to those of us who are in the ministry, but I know it also happens to Sunday school teachers and deacons. Some of you this morning in this congregation are spiritually dead. There's some of you who haven't cracked a Bible in weeks and months. There's some of you whose prayer life consists of a few brief phrases at mealtime we call grace and some of us are spiritually dead and do we need revival of course we need revival and that revival's going to come when we begin to repair those altars that were broken down in our relationship with God prayer is, by, is the means by which the empty vessel is carried to the full fountain. And some of us have been so neglectful of it. I was reading the other day, this, this advertisement said, learn French in two months. <laughs> you can speak the language. It said, said, you know, you, you've seen them, it says, Speak the language, learn German in six weeks. I mean, it's just nothing to it. Just, you take this course and in two months time, you're speaking fluent French and six weeks, you're speaking fluent German. Baloney. Wouldn't you like, you know, if you pick up one of these bulletins, you know, you come in on Sunday morning, you pick up a bulletin and across the front of it says, be like the Apostle Paul before spring semester. You know, or, or be like Jesus before school is out. So easy. It's just not that way, my friend. To walk in the steps of our Lord and to exemplify the life of those who have walked in the steps of our Lord is not a six-week course that you can learn while you sleep. It's a course that comes in daily repentance and return to the Word. It does not happen overnight. It's painful and it's difficult and it's, it's, it's lengthy and it hurts to do it. And so he says, 
when you recognize you sinned against the Lord, then do something about that sin in the area of your home life, your, 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 your business life, your church life, your, your personal life. Well, I probably made a sufficient number of you angry enough I can move on to point three. The characteristics that denote revival. What happens when revival comes? What happens when revival comes? Well, from the text, there were several things that happened. One thing was they had victory. There was victory. Now, you need to ask yourself a couple of things about that victory. First, you need to ask yourself where it occurred. And the answer is it occurred on the farmer fields of their defeat. It happened where they had been defeated again and again. When the Philistines heard that these Israelis were at Mizpah, they said, hey, we've whipped them there. We'll just go back and whip them again. Now, if I told you this morning that, that I've gotten great victory in my life from the Lord recently, the Lord delivered me from dipping snuff. I have, I, you know, that's no victory. I've never, uh, you know, when I was a kid, my grandmother used to dip snuff, and I, never, I, I got so sick at, at one dip of that stuff that, that I promise you, that delivered me from dipping snuff. I mean, the Lord had nothing to do with this one dip, and I was delivered. So if I tell you this morning, the Lord has delivered me from dipping snuff or dancing, man, you ought to see me dance. I mean, I've got two left feet. I, that, that one little dance and having all the girls laugh at you, that's plenty enough. That, that delivered me. If I told you this morning that I, the Lord gave me victory over dancing and dipping snuff, that, that's not the Lord's victory in my life. But if I told you this morning that the Lord delivered me from jealousy and from selfishness and from anxiety. Friend, you just got yourself some scoop because there's where I struggle and there's where that, and you, you name whatever, whatever your problem is, but there's where I've labored and I've suffered such heart-rending defeat. There's where I've wept bitter tears. There's my field of defeat. And if I gain victory there, it'll be because he delivered me. Notice that this battlefield was at the place where they were defeated over and over and over again. When revival comes, victory comes, and that victory is at the point where you are always defeated. Ask yourself where. Where did victory occur? Ask yourself when the victory occurred. It occurred before Israel went out to battle. Do you notice that? They just chased them off. They didn't, they didn't win the battle. The, the Lord thundered, it said, with a great thunder. And, 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 as, and as those Philistines fled down the, the, down the valley with lightning flashing behind them, the Israelis just came and mopped up. For the battle was won before the battle was ever fought. 
That's the way every victory from God occurs. You see, revival doesn't come in order to prepare us so we can do better. Revival occurs in order for man to appropriate the victory that God has already accomplished. It's not getting you stronger. It's, it's tapping you in on his strength. Now, that's what Paul was driving at when he, when he comes in that marvelous Ephesian passage and gives us that, that armor uh, message, put on this whole armor of God. And then he says, and, and with all prayer, because what he wants us to know is that you can be armed with God's armor, but the victory comes in the prayer room, in the prayer closet. You and I have been showing up on the wrong battlefield. The battlefield is in the, in the prayer room and when you get before God in prayer, then the battle's won there. The scripture says they told Samuel, pray for us and he prayed for them and because he prayed for them, the battle was won. When is the battle won? It's won when a man gets hold of God in prayer. There was victory. There was vindication. I was reading this the other day and just reading back over it and back over it again. And all of a sudden it struck me, this, this truth, that when a man returns to the Lord with his whole heart, then he's not just on God's side, God's on his side. And every enemy has to deal with God. That's what Tracy was singing about a while ago when she said, you put yourself in his hands and the only thing that can touch you there is him. You put yourself in God's hands and he's the only one that can touch you. There's vindication. There was vision. They saw the Lord. They saw the Lord. They not only saw him, what he did, they saw the Lord. What if you left out of here this morning and tomorrow somebody said to you, who'd you see at church yesterday? Well, you say, I saw, I saw Dr. Parkson, I saw John Proley led us in prayer, I saw so-and-so sitting beside me, or you might say, guess who I saw at church? You know, I mean, who? <laughs> who'd you see at church? I wonder if somebody stops you on the street tomorrow in downtown Durant and asks, who did you see at church yesterday? I wonder who among us would immediately respond, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. When Isaiah went to the house of God, he saw the Lord. Don't you long to, to, for that to happen? to see his face and to see him is to see yourself. To see him is to see what he does and what he did was he routed the enemy, restored Israel. That shelf behind the door, that shelf behind the door Tear it down, throw it away. Don't use it anymore. The Lord wants his temple clean. 
from the ceiling to the floor. He even wants that little shelf that's hid behind the door. I heard a man, about a man, this and I'm through, who had a little shop. Business was terrible. He was about ready to close it down. The floor was dirty. The windows were filthy. He himself was disheveled and untidy. His, his stock had diminished and run down. One day the king came by and said, would you like for me to put over the door of your business approved by the king? Kind of like good housekeeping seal of approval. Would you like to, for me to put over your door approved by the king? Then you do what I tell you, exactly what I tell you. And so he cleaned up his store. He swept it out. He washed his windows. He put on new clothes. He, he, he redid his stock. And all of a sudden, the cash registers begin to ring. The till began to fill up. People began to come because the king had put over the door. Proved by the king. Would you like to drive down 2nd Street tomorrow and see written over these words out here in blood? Approved by the king. Would you like to have over your heart his word approved by the king? You can if you're willing to do just like he said. I don't want to be a part of a church that's not approved by the king. Let's pray together. Father, we've bow, we bow now in your presence to find out what we do now, where we go from here. Speak to our heart. Let us know. Tell us, Lord, right now, to our spirit speak, for your servant hears. Bless this invitation that the decisions that are made in it will glorify you forever because I pray in Jesus' name. Now we have three invitations this morning. The first invitation is for you to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Coming trusting Christ, believing on Him. Second invitation is for you to join the church. We had a family join our church in the early service because they feel like, felt led of God to come and place their life here. Maybe you feel that same leadership. Third invitation is for you to begin to repair the altars, the recognition and the resolution of sin, tearing down that little shelf that's hid behind the door. Give it to Him. While we stand to sing, would you come?